Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Is email a weak spot in our cybersecurity defenses? Few organizations of any size can operate without email. But email systems are part of an IT infrastructure that is often taken for granted. So much so that email servers are not being managed or patched as well as they should. And with other types of business communications taking the spotlight, are we overlooking the huge volume of information that still travels over email? Attacks on email continue to pose a risk. In this episode, we speak to two experts in the field about the threats to email infrastructure and how to protect it. Matt Bromley is a senior principal consultant at Mandiant. He'll be discussing the recent vulnerabilities found in Microsoft's Exchange server, as well as business email compromise attacks. Our first guest, though, is Stephen Reynolds, director at Libresva. His company specializes in securing email platforms but he's also a great believer in using training alongside automation to shut down the email threat. And that's hardly a surprise given that phishing attacks continue to grow at pace. There are certainly studies that have shown phishing's increased by 600% and other statistics like of that nature. But certainly as part of the whole COVID scenario and now that everyone's gone remotely, um, emails sort of, again, not, not only was it previously the primary method of communication, now it's for most um, the only um, you know, you, if you was to call an organization, very little actually transferring them to, to other colleagues' mobiles will have the, the ability to actually do that. And email is still the way that they're directing people to get in contact with their employees. So um, the use of email has increased. Uh, and as such, um, we've also, you know, I, I mentioned the statistics around phishing there, but, um, you know, we, we have seen... Uh, as a, an email security provider, we've seen phishing campaigns around COVID. You know, latest COVID updates is a fake uh, campaign that's been released and, and actually everyone's racing to actually understand what the new lockdown restrictions are. And obviously knowing that that is a fake page has asked them to input their Microsoft credentials to get access to that information. So yeah, so reliance on email as 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 a remote working tool is increased, but also so of the, uh, the opportunities to trick people into certain information that is close to home or they feel, um, you know, yeah, whatever it might be, a new tax relief policy for COVID remote workers and, and other social engineering type hooks. So there's an ongoing need for vigilance, definitely. But we've seen some specific attacks. There was a, a spate of uh, vulnerabilities in the Microsoft Exchange server system uh, quite recently. Are we likely to see more of these type of vulnerabilities emerge? Is that something that uh, IT teams and security teams need to be very conscious of? As with any software or, or any um, type of product out there, over time, um, you know, there, there will be vulnerabilities that, that crop up and are identified later on down the line. But, um, you know, uh, there's also the, as I say, the development of, of their platforms as well. You know, all of these vendors are trying to improve the performance and, and the capabilities of their software and, and it's not just about finding vulnerabilities that previously existed, um, that actually new vulnerabilities can come with um, with the new developments of the products. And they, everyone has to keep up. It's a very competitive world, digital world now where we all live in. And and I think not to say that these vendors are, are forgetting about security or anything like that. It's, you know, with as an example, um, you know, it, 
costs around £80 or so a year to get a Microsoft Office 365 license. So any hacker or spammer worth their salt already has an account and they're working day in, day out to exploit the platform and find new ways around that. And the fact is that there are just far more of them than there are of us. So it's it's almost inevitable, I would say, that you know vulnerabilities will be found within these platforms. And as much as we do um, to, to, to kind of remove or eliminate that from happening, um, you know, it... it they they will find a way around and it's it's only through having a very pragmatic pragmatic approach to the, the security and, and the features and solutions you're building um can we make the best efforts to stop that but you know certainly around the microsoft side you know a lot of it um you know there are many applications out there that blindly trust um microsoft and you know to give there's been a whole spat of um breaches around the whole solar winds and you know and using the microsoft api with the microsoft apis there's a whole host of things you can get access to right um, but only a subset of those will actually be used within your service but um and we will as an example we will only um take the permissions we need to deliver the service that we that we are actually trying to deliver whereas the other vendors have, have taken the full breadth of everything that they can leverage from that API. Um, and most of it they won't actually need, but loopholes have been found in and around the, the, the aspects that they haven't needed. And, and it's that that blind trust on organizations that uh, have almost led to creating, you know, a wider attack surface for cyber criminals to, to leverage. And um, we do have to be ultra vigilant. And, it, you know, it's it's not only down to, to the software manufacturers as well. It's 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 the users and the organizations. We You know, we need to be almost paranoid about who is contacting us at all times. You know, even if it's a trusted supplier, um, you know, would they be asking, you know, things like, um, you know, it, your CEO asking for, um, you know, you to pay for an invoice for iTunes at a two hour notice period. Do they often do that? Uh, you know, is that a normal bit sort of business practice? You you have to be ultra paranoid now as a user as to what people are asking you to do uh, when they're sending you requests. So that leads on to the whole question of business email compromise, which in some respects is actually the greater threat than the technical vulnerabilities in the mail service themselves, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, business email compromise is you know it's a it's a type of spoofing but um it's a combination of of, a t of technical um techniques used to, to attack your organization by uh, impersonating a specific person so there's there's a couple of flavors here you've got the direct spoof which is me copying your email address um and, you know changing the the envelope to pretend i'm from you um which you know again uh, but business email compromise impersonation is is actually coining a similar domain or name and domain. I might have, as an example, you know, stephen.reynolds at libraesva.com. Um, and I might actually buy another domain which has got uh, libraesva without the I, as an example. So to the naked eye, uh, it's a legitimate domain. I've bought that. It's libraesva without the I or libraesva, if you like. Um at stephen.reynolds at um, But a Monday morning at eight o'clock when I email, um, you know, someone else at Stephen Reynolds' organization um, and ask them, look, uh, I need this invoice paid immediately. Um, can you turn this around today? It's urgent. Um, they might not realize that that domain is missing the eye. And, um, you know, and it's, so it's, it's a combination of social and engineering trickery and trying to kind of trick that person to believing that I am Stephen, um, but also using some of the technical techniques like changing the headers and spoofing to, to actually carry out that attack. 
So it's a combination of two um, sophisticated. And there's varying degrees in this, you know, um, down to like studying almost um, the language that that person uses. I think five years ago, it was quite easy to spot a phishing attempt out. There's a lot of typos in the email and even the fake Microsoft page that they direct you to in the end. Um, it, all the color colors are wrong and you can spot a million miles away that it's not, uh, that it's fake. But to now, in, in now, uh, they're all, every uh, phishing page to, you know, almost a certain degree is almost an exact copy, an exact replica, an exact lookalike of that page. So um, it makes it much more difficult these days um, to actually, you know, detect when that is, uh, you know, a fake page because it looks exactly like it. The, the emails are, are, in, are in, you know, perfect English and sometimes even sound like the person that was originally sending them. So this leans more towards fraud, I suppose, than being a technical vulnerability, but it needs the technology to enable it, doesn't it? And what steps can you put in place to flag these? How, how could you potentially detect or, or even can you deter this type of attack? How would you go about that? As with most things, it's about having a multi-layered approach um, to security here. You, you know, you've, there are uh, technologies like ourselves out there that do provide an additional layer of security for email that can um, look at all potential permutations of your name and domain and provide uh, business email compromise type uh, features to, to protection yourself. But it, it does go further than that. You know, it is also looking at your own organization and the processes. If I get a request in that says I need this pay, this invoice paid, however, you know, whether it's uh, fake or, or even if it's a legitimate um, payment request, um, it, you know, you have to have the, the, the people process in place to actually phone that supplier and say, hi, um, you know, did you make this request? And, and actually verifying that that is correct. Um, and oh no, I didn't actually send that to you, you know. And it, and it's about having the the processes in place at an organisational level to actually follow up on these these payment requests and check if they're valid, and not just relying on um, on the tools to you know if they come through clearly they must be legitimate, you know. So it's about um, the, having the the spoofing and the business email compromise features in place as part of um, an email security perspective, which aren't, by the way, uh, default with Google or Microsoft. Um, they 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 go to some degree, but they don't go as far as business email compromise. Um, there are anti-spoofing type features within Microsoft and Google as standard, and they do do a good job on that front. But um, as I say, it's only by employing a dedicated email security platform that has these kind of phishing and, and, and impersonation protection capabilities, as well as looking at your organization as well and making sure that um, there are processes there for validating payment requests. So what percentage of organizations would you say actually make that investment? Because, uh, again, there tends to be a bit of a, we'll put email in, we've put email in, we've had email for years, and it does what it says on the tin. It's not very exciting. Um, do we need to invest more in it? And maybe there's a lack of awareness at the leadership level of say, actually, this is a vulnerability, but it's this combination of technology and human risk uh, rather than something that can purely be fixed by you know, your perimeter systems or your uh, endpoint security. I think it's a fairly a fairly complex answer to that, really. I think you've got, um, you know, prior to, to the release of Office 365 and, and G Suite in the, in the last couple of years, um, a, a lot of a, a large percentage of organisations had a legacy email security appliance of some sort, um, and you know, from moving to Microsoft and Microsoft's having you know claims that it has all these security features, a lot of organisations ditched their legacy gateways, their dedicated email security appliances, and so on. Um, for this new Microsoft Plus security approach. And um, 
I, and then on moving there, I realized that actually the security package that they're offered didn't actually include uh, as much or, or they were, again, sort of trusting in Microsoft having their security needs at hand um, without actually looking into um, what, how they're actually projected and to what degree uh, these features uh, provide. Uh, you know, in terms of the protection. So you, you've had that whole shift of, of the industry, which have moved from having this legacy approach to security to, uh, to Microsoft Google trusting, which is not as granular as it needs to be. And then, you know, many organizations now um, really strike, certainly IT professionals, I think at that level, at the IT professional management administration level, I think majority, again, would, would uh, fundamentally understand the, the need for uh, a dedicated uh, you know, a layer of security for email, um, but find it quite difficult to sort of speak to the board and and um, and again, a much smaller percentage of boards are pro security. So, um, speaking the language uh, of your board of directors and being able to gather the evidence needed to to justify why you need this spend. You know, it's fine saying, well, we need an email security platform, but um, a lot of the time they're faced with this, these questions of, right, well, you know, how can you tell we need it? Well, where's the evidence? How can you prove? And for a lot of IT professionals, gathering that evidence to say, you know, here are the problems, uh, guys, that we need to actually do something about this is, is terribly difficult. And as you say, if, if never, we haven't paid for this before, why do we need to pay for it now? So I think a lot of organizations are struggling with, you know, um, the kind of, the budgetary needs um, for for security, and um, you know the, the purse strings will only stretch so far. But um, you know, I think yeah, as I say, a combination of not being able to acquire the funding needed as necessary, uh, as well as the shift into now relying on Microsoft has created this sort of storm. Um, but many organisations have have always um, under you know understood the need for that, and and even um, with the, their transition to Microsoft, have, have still. Uh, always employed uh, services um, but you know again in the email security industry it is very much a replacement market so in the email security industry many of the vendors actually have the same underlying technology the same antivirus engines the same oem agreements with their sandboxing providers and um you might be moving from one technology to the next but um you know ultimately the results are the same um different flashing lights laser beams and color schemes um but the results are, and the same challenges are, are seen um, when you're moving from one product to the next, because they're acting exactly the same way, and um, and so yeah, so I think that's that's caused a slight loss of um, a loss of faith in in the email security platforms out there. You know, some organisations have, have moved every provider for the last five years, uh, only to find the same results, the same somewhat effective products, um, and the, the zero day threats out there are, are still. Uh, finding their way through and, and obviously some of these organizations bashing their heads against the wall um, looking out for technology trying to find a technology that can actually um, do the job they're employing it to. So what should be the priorities for the CISO and for the CIO in terms of fixing this? It's a combination of things I mean yeah yeah yeah. Um, first you need to identify whether you have an issue and there are various threat assessment tools out there we actually have one email securitytester.com um, which can send you some of the most common threats for Office 365 and, and test whether your current security capabilities can stop these types of threats. I think that's the first thing to do is to work out what do I have and actually test it against uh, all these different verticals and attack vectors to make sure that, you know, um, oh, um, you know, are you covered currently with the tools you currently have? And if not, um, identify where those areas are. That's the first thing. Um, and then, you know, and, and, then looking at your business and the application of, of email uh, there, if you're a financial company that holds, uh, you know, records of customer data and you have a lot of financial IP and, and there is, you know, obviously the degree of risk 
to your organization should be a, a paramount um, kind of importance there. And, and that's not to say that, you know, if, if you're just a, you know, a retail business that, or, you know, or, or a business that doesn't really hold any of this information, low risk is not no risk. And, you know, a cyber attack could be um, certainly costly. And, uh, you know, for other industries now who have been significantly impacted by, um, by COVID and revenues of revenue streams have dried up because of the restrictions. Uh, it's even more important now, right? You, you know, you, uh, you may, you certainly might not actually recover from a, from a, a cyber reach where maybe you would have previously, but um, so you've got yeah, the, the importance of looking at your data, what you're holding and, and, you know, uh, the other aspects like your brand reputation, how important is that to you? And, and, and then making the decision based on that about what platform you should be going for, you know, um, and having a look at uh, the, the, the vendors feature sets that mo the best fit your needs. Um, but then also looking at, at the, your organization and the people within it. Um, you know, I think uh, again, uh, not not enough organizations really are looking at your you know your employees as your first line of defense rather than your your last line um and you know making sure you're you're trained to um your your employees are trained to to understand the dangers of, of phishing you know what is a phishing attack what should they do when they spot them should you know and the one thing we've actually noticed is that even organizations that are providing um, a huge amount of security awareness training and testing uh, aren't actually seeing drops in click rates and um, and almost bashing your staff over the head when they've clicked uh, the wrong link or, or sending them into a three-hour training session on the dangers of clicking links is obviously not working either. The general daily business user is not an IT security professional and you should be doing your best to, um, to you know, ensure that these perimeter defences are in place first and foremost um, to, to stop uh, the majority of these things coming through. There are always going to be threats that, that slip through the filters, right? Uh, regardless of whether, how you know, to what degree you've got a multi-layered approach to email filtering. Um, there, there are always going to be some emails here or there, but it should only be that that your staff are left to deal with, the two or three emails um, over a day or a weekly period that, oh yeah, that doesn't look right. Or yeah, why are they sending me a request to purchase 10,000 iTunes vouchers? So if you use the technology, if you use the technology to filter out the bulk of it, then you can allow the training and the human recipients of the email to focus on uh, maybe assessing the riskier or the more ambiguous cases. And that's where the training kicks in. So say if you if you start with the principle that the volume is going to be reduced by technology, then human beings will perform better at screening out the um, malicious email and therefore yep. be more secure. Is that basically what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, every user should still be, as I said earlier, and, you know, be paranoid generally when you're getting requests, even if it is from a known supplier. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, to a point where you cannot be second guessing every single email you're receiving as an email business user, right? It, you know, there's only, uh, you have to be able to get on with your day job. So, um, yeah, so it has to be um, to a point where it, they are trying to assess the the small number of emails that you know that don't look right rather than questioning every single email they ever received although that's would be a perfect scenario really wouldn't it you know if we uh, took that approach um we'd, we'd be in a in a, a much better place for security really stephen reynolds there our next guest matt bromley has been watching the recent security problems with email servers closely and he says it's usually the smaller companies without large-scale security departments 
that are worse hit? This is a really well-timed question, if you will, because we've just come off the heels of uh, Microsoft releasing some pretty significant Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities that came out. And I remember when these came out in early March of 2021, it was a really, really big industry concern because it was fairly easy for threat actors to get a hold of an email server, uh, execute code on it, read emails, download address books, download email inboxes, things that they typically wouldn't or shouldn't have access to, if you will. Um, and these vulnerabilities ended up being not only very, very critical, but they also were easily exploitable because we had lots of code being released out on the internet. Lots of folks who had figured out how to uh, conduct the exploit, writing up a script, some sort of a scripting language, and then providing it for free for other folks to use and, and to test. So from a security perspective, where this gets really concerning and, and maybe, you know, I think, Steve, the other way to back this up, too, is to think about kind of vulnerability disclosures in general and things that become vulnerable. Um, and I'll give you the, the other side and then we'll, we'll zoom back in on email. But if there is a significant vulnerability that comes out for a, you know, a, a product or a product line that is pretty expensive and really caters to maybe, you know, the top 500 companies in the world or something like that, um, your scope of impact is very, very narrow, meaning, yes, someone could do something malicious with it, but the amount of companies who have this thing implemented is going to be relatively low. And, and there's a pretty good chance as well that if you can afford an expensive toolkit, you can also probably afford a security team who's helping you manage that. Where email really, I think, shifts the pendulum is Microsoft, out, Microsoft Exchange, if you will, is an email server that is fairly common among a lot of organizations around the world, whether you have 500,000 employees or whether you have two employees. And I think where this became really, really, uh, I should say this became a big deal or this continues to be a big deal is a lot of security news and a lot of security outreach hits those folks with teams, with programs, with the ability to ingest and consume that data. But unfortunately, it doesn't really always reach the smaller organizations out there who use the exact same product. They just use it in a very, very scaled down manner. And I think that's what's given a lot of us a lot of concern lately is email is a very, very, very big attack vector. An email server is also a great asset for an attacker to have, especially if it's in a country that you want to attack later on. And I think, you know, there, there needs to be some recognition, perhaps amongst myself and my industry peers, if you will, that what we are advising and helping against should cater to organizations of all size, not just the, you know, the big guys, if you will, who have the money to ingest the expensive feeds. And when did we first start or when did you first start to see these attacks emerging in the wild? So... This was an interesting retrospective activity. The vulnerabilities were announced in early March 2021. Um, and once we understood the, the how the vulnerabilities worked, we actually were able to uncover that we've seen these vulnerabilities in the wild since at least January of 2021. Um, we can't date them further back. Uh, we can't date them any further back than January 2021. But we are able to see them kind of two months in the wild, if you will, prior to the, the disclosure. This... Um, you know, heightens, I think, the way that we respond to these things. Uh, if, if I tell you that there's a weakness and you, you know, do you discover the weakness and discover that it's never been used before, uh, it, you know, definitely lowers the severity a little bit. If I tell you a weakness and you discover, oh, this thing's actually been used for two months, 
before anyone else knew about it publicly. Um, so the you know official answer is January 2021, um, but the disclosure is the important date because it shined light on a lot of what we were seeing out in the wild. Right. So can you give us a top level summary of the vulnerabilities and the exploits that we're making use of? Certainly. Yeah. So uh, at, at a high level, it was Microsoft Exchange Server, which is Microsoft's kind of on-premise email client. And this is an important distinction here. Um, the important distinction is if you have email hosted in the cloud up in their Azure environment, if you will, uh, you weren't impacted by this. It was specifically limited to on-premises Exchange Server, and it was only certain versions as well. I believe it was everything above Exchange 2013. Um, and the vulnerabilities, uh, there, was, there was four primary vulnerabilities that were announced as part of this. Um, it's a, there's an important distinction here. Only one of them was really exploitable from the internet without any sort of access or, or any other uh, privileges on that system, any other account. The other three, I believe, were what we would call a second stage vulnerability, where you would actually need to have some sort of access to the box. Now, of course, there's a ladder approach here, which is you could take advantage of the one that doesn't require an account or require access, and then use that to subsequently kind of kick off one of the other three if you wanted to. And that was a very common observation, was a chained event of vulnerability exploitation. Uh, at a high level, these vulnerabilities allowed for a handful of things we really don't want attackers to be able to do. Uh, in some cases, they could connect to an, in, uh, to an exchange server and export an address book or export a full inbox, getting access to emails. Um, in other cases, the attackers would utilize these to achieve what we call remote code execution, where they'll place a file on the system or they'll get the system to execute something on their behalf. And usually the goal there is to get subsequent access or secondary or tertiary access onto that system. The most common attacker approach was to take advantage of these vulnerabilities and place a web shell on the systems. And the web shell is a you know, malicious web page that allows them to get back to the system whenever they wanted to, as long as it wasn't detected, even if the vulnerability was potentially patched. Um, so a lot of it was to, to gain that initial foothold. But uh, yeah, at a high level, it was kind of a laddered approach of exploitation. So getting an exploit in there, potentially opening up a backdoor to those systems for future use. But was there any pattern to who was using these? Because you said that they were being shared online, presumably on the dark web. Were there any particular groups exploiting this or is it something that's actually now quite widespread? Yeah, this is the this is the tough part behind it. Uh, sometimes when we see certain attack vectors open up, they sometimes get utilized by very specific groups. You may see like a foreign state-sponsored entity or, or a um, state-sponsored threat or a state-sponsored threat actor utilizing a particular vulnerability. And, and you can kind of tell that they found it first and therefore they, they kind of hold the, the crown, if you will, of, of using that. And then it becomes public and other folks use it. Um, you know, you can kind of think back to maybe late 2019, early 2020, um, Citrix had a, a Citrix Netscaler had a vulnerability that was taken advantage of by a lot of groups, but we saw some ransomware teams really trying to take advantage of that. Um, in this case, the attribution became a little bit harder because there was so many different versions running around, but also Steve, the, the time frame of when it came out was also uh, questionable. So to give a, a little brief history, there was essentially a, a group that had, I believe, identified the vulnerability and disclosed it to Microsoft. They had tweeted out in early January what they had discovered. Um, and it, you know, between that time in January and the time in March when we all found out about it, 
there was some exploitation that took place. Now, of course, the, the obvious answer would be, well, someone saw that tweet and they figured out what was going on, but there wasn't that much detail in there. Um, even, even worse, the company uh, Orange, I believe, was the kind of the, the nickname they had used, and you'll understand that in just a second. The, the company that had figured it out in January, the, the proof of concept code that they wrote actually created a web shell and used the word Orange, which associates back to their company, as the password. So you would expect then, anytime we see orange, it would be someone legitimately testing code. Not the case. We saw a lot of malicious orange web shells out there as well. Uh, my point being the source of this is, is pretty hard to track down. Um, we do have over at Mandiant, we do have a, an uncategorized group. We don't necessarily have an APT associated with this. We do have an uncategorized group who we've associated with this activity. Um, but that is not to say that the future may give us a little more insight into who's actually behind this. Uh, but I'll say for now, I, I think it's uh, probably a handful of different groups, different threat actors who got access to code, some of them early, some of them right around March, and they went after and exploited to, you know, as soon as they could or as soon as they needed to. Uh, the other kind of element I'll throw here from a who's behind the curtain perspective is we typically do see once a vulnerability is disclosed, and meaning a product has been identified as having a weakness, we'll usually see some form of internet-wide scanning. Um, and you can attribute, you know, like a showdown for this. You can also attribute threat actors trying to build a profile list. We do see kind of these scans where folks set out to try and find open ports, find vulnerable products, identify vulnerabilities out in the wild, so on and so forth. I know we saw multiple rounds of this for exchange. We also saw multiple mass exploitation of exchange. And I think this brings us back to that, you know, that smaller business side of things where a lot of organizations had exchange facing the internet. Someone took this exploit, figured out a way to script it, and then just ran it against various IP blocks around the world. And when we see articles of tens of thousands of systems impacted by this, the majority of those, I'd have to say, based on what I saw, are smaller entities. Um, so I think this one, you know, it, it, you, you asked a really good question about who's behind it. And I think the who plus the just really massive scale of how this went down uh, is, is another important consideration. But it also muddies the water when we try to figure out who's actually behind it. And then I suppose because we're not totally clear on the who, we're not really sure about the why either, what their objective would be. That is also an excellent point. Yes. The, the why, the objective is a, is a tough one to answer. Uh, we, of course, we have theories, we have hypotheses. Um, I've got a few of my own, but uh, I, I, I don't think we have an official objective from any specific group as to what they're going after. You are correct. What could have been done or what should be done to block this or to prevent it potentially? This is the interesting question. Um, do, we, do we abandon all software? Uh, because it doesn't work, you know, does everyone just move to cloud hosted email and whatnot? Um, obviously, that's, that's not the case, you know, uh, I think there's a couple of, of different approaches that that some of them were taken, um, some of them continue to be taken, and some of them need to be taken. Um, I think the level of communication amongst the information security industry was was wide and, and vast. I mean, everyone was talking about this. And, and I love that. Um, I love to see very, very pressing issues get a lot of discussion and a lot of mention. So I like the fact that we all talk about things. Um, we analyze code, we analyze traffic, we, we do our best to try and to figure out as defenders to try and figure out what's happened 
and then reverse and detect that to the best of our capability. And that all happened very, very quickly. Um, the next thing that we should be doing is we should be trying to pass that message to folks who may not be receiving it uh, as, as loudly as, as we are, for example. So um, I know in some organizations I talk to, uh, and you can tell I'm leaning towards wanting to assist the smaller businesses here, but in some smaller businesses that I talk to, two, three weeks after the, uh, after the vulnerability disclosure, they still hadn't heard about it yet. So I think that the next thing for, and this is, a, this is an organization with, you know, Pretty, pretty sizable footprint, uh, maybe, you know, thousands of employees, but the security team is one, maybe two people, um, but they were just so busy dealing with day-to-day -day ops that they're not consuming the, the vulnerability disclosures, the feeds that we're looking for. So I think maybe if we continue to work on ways to push that message even further down the security chain um, to the smaller organizations, and then you get towards your even smaller ones that don't have an IT center or a security staff whatsoever, they likely outsource to a company. And you may have one company provide IT support services for 30, 40 different clients they also need to be the ones pushing that message out. So I think messaging is another one that can be very, very helpful. I'll also give a lot of credit to Microsoft. Microsoft made it extremely easy for folks to test and subsequently patch their exchange servers as well. And that is a trend I would like to see continue amongst almost every vendor out there. Uh, Microsoft got to the point where they had a free tool that you could download regardless of your you know, regardless of how much money you pay or, or how many products you have, if you have exchange, download this thing and run it and it will help mitigate and also set you up for patching. And I would love to see that become the future of vulnerability disclosures, of patching, of vendor support, if you will. I'd love to see just ease of access and ease of implementation. I think that's going to end up making a big dent in the future. But do you feel, though, that maybe email has been overlooked as a vulnerability or as a risk and it's an area that businesses of all sizes need to pay more attention to so email is a very interesting vector because of the way that it's used so yes i think it is downplayed a lot more than it should be um, and i i tend to lean so one of the other things that uh, i i do as part of being an incident responder as part of an analyst is I also spend a lot of time analyzing and investigating um, BEC or business email compromise attacks. And when you ask me about email, now I have these two forces brought together. I've got this exchange vulnerability series, and then I've also got these BEC attacks going on. And BEC attacks is a multi-billion dollar industry annually. That is, in my opinion, one of the most significant threats out there. The problem with that is that attacking email is not as exciting as attacking a centrifuge. So unfortunately, email gets downplayed a lot as, oh, this thing that, you know, just put it in the cloud, just wrap two factor in front of it, and you'll be absolutely fine. Um, and that advice, unfortunately, does not work very well, because, again, a lot of the masses out there don't get the message, they don't have that sent out. So I, I think it is time for organizations, if they haven't yet, Email should be at one of the top, if not the top of your list of potential vulnerabilities, of potential entry vectors. And, and you know, even, even without exchange, we could just look at the number one entry vector of all malware out there, of all uh, attacks, which is spear phishing, 
um, year after year, spearfishing continues to take the crown as the number one way to get into an organization. So email has become this extreme business necessity, especially in the wake of COVID-19. And I think attackers have known that about as long as we have. And they've looked at it and said, well, you're not going to get rid of this thing. You're not going to turn it off. Therefore, we're going to continue to use it until it doesn't work anymore. So we as an industry need to get to a point where it doesn't work anymore. And I think we do that by, as you mentioned, considering it to be the, the number one, the priority inside of the organization and focusing defenses and user education there where we can. That is part of the challenge, though, because email is one of those pieces of infrastructure that perhaps doesn't attract as much attention as some of the newer alternatives of communications that are out there. And at the same time, if you turn it off, your business can't operate. You know, so many <laughs> systems are tied into those exchange servers. One reason that businesses have on-premises exchange servers is because they need to create links, or custom links to ERP, CRM, HRM, all these other localized systems that they might have. And it, it can be running very mission-critical operations. But it, as you've alluded to there, sometimes these systems are somewhat neglected or just assume they keep working, we don't have to worry about them. So what should the CISO be doing to prioritize or at least to perhaps refocus some of the attention on the risks that, you know, if you're going to use email, there will be inherently some risks with that. So how do you lock those risks down? Yeah, so the first thing I'd recommend is, uh, regardless of what email you're using, um, you know, if, if you are uh, I, I look at this kind of as, and you brought it up, and I, it's an interesting, it, it is the key factor to this is whether you are on-prem or whether you are in the cloud, um, because that should that should be your first initial determination as a CISO, as, as a stakeholder, is where is our email hosted and how much visibility and control do we have over that? Um, so, you know, that, that's the first assessment. If it's, if it's in the cloud, um, I don't, your security is not taken care of for you, if you will, but I will say you do have a, a pretty good helping hand. Um, Microsoft logging, if you're in MS365, and I'll, I'll use the big two, but there's, there's tons of email services out there. So please don't think I'm forgetting anyone intentionally. But if you use Microsoft, for example, MS365, you, you have a lot of built-in capabilities from, a, from an account control perspective, all the way to, you know, the, the, the domain outlook.com has got an entire security team behind it. And you don't have to protect that domain or that entry vector. Um, a Gmail or a G Suite, if you're using that for your business, that obviously, you know, I can turn on two-factor very, very easily. So there's a lot of really good helper security there. Um, so in the cloud, you know, make sure you're taking advantage of everything you can and then wrap yourself around user education. And that's, that's I think, going to be the big one is, you know, and this, this alludes a little bit towards phishing as well. But once you've got that, you know, protective layer, if you will, Get, get monitoring in place, keep an eye on your email logs, keep an eye on what your users are doing, and then start to educate your users and you'll bring that, you know, that entry vector down a lot. If you're on-prem, your, your, I should say your responsibility, I don't wanna say tenfold, but it does increase significantly. So from there, as an organization, as a security team, really look at how email is being used inside of your environment. You know, you, you made a great point. Exchange integrates with a lot of different things. And a lot of organizations have that global address list tied into a significant amount of their operations. As a security team, you, you need to understand those integrations. And you need to understand if I get access to someone's email and I shouldn't have access to it, how much damage can I do? 
perform that risk assessment and then start closing off holes where you have them. Um, you know, and then make sure anything that's internet facing has the right protections wrapped around it. You're only using current modern authentications to factor if entirely possible everywhere. Turning off older legacies, sorry, legacy protocols, closing ports you don't need, really just making it very difficult for the attacker. And, and really all I wanna do here um, if, if anyone remembers that movie 300, I, I look at email defense as very much like that. Uh, if I can limit my attack to one very heavily monitored corridor, then I can start talking about securing that corridor. But if we're not going to patch, if we're going to leave ports open, we're going to give everyone you know, elevated permissions where they don't need it. You've created a lot of different corridors and you can't be expected to secure every single one. So really consolidate, in my opinion, uh, and then focus on wrapping security around what you can control and, and narrowing the attack vector. Matt Bromley on how to use technology to limit the attacker's room for maneuver and hopefully funnel them towards areas that are more easily defended. As he says, though, much of this relies on doing the basics of cyber hygiene and doing them well. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll look at how malicious actors are increasingly targeting the healthcare sector. That episode will go live on June the 22nd, and I do hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.